This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I'm delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Rabbi Goldberg is the senior rabbi of the Boca Raton Synagogue, which is the largest Orthodox synagogue in the southeastern United States. Rabbi Goldberg is also the vice president of the Rabbinical Council of America, a member of the board of trustees of the Beit Din of America, the APAC National Council, and has been deeply involved in Israel in a whole variety of ways over many years. He is also a great Torah intellectual scholar and communicator, publishing on HOU, and is the host of a magnificent podcast on the Parsha. Rabbi Goldberg, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And so I love your passage, but who doesn't? This is the beginning of Lechachav, Exodus 12, 1 through 3. So what happens in 12, 1 through 3, and why is it meaningful to you? Well, this is the first time we're introduced in the Bible itself to our great patriarch, Abraham Avraham. And while certainly those who grew up with a, a Jewish educational background have heard a lot about him through the rabbinic midrashic literature, this is actually the first time the text introduces us to him. And it does in a somewhat enigmatic way. God speaks to him and he tells him it's time to head out. We don't know anything about his life. He's 75 years old at that point, which in our definition of time is, is an advanced age. So we don't know the background. We don't know what had led him there. We don't know what his childhood was like. We don't know the, the context in which God is recruiting him, but God says, Lech Lecha, it's time to head out. You're going to leave and abandon everything you know to the land I'm going to show you. And then God doesn't identify where that land is. He doesn't give him coordinates, doesn't tell him what address to plug into ways, just says, have confidence and trust, go out, and I'll take you there. And there, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your reputation, your name great, and you will be a blessing. And others, uh, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed, and they'll find blessing through you. And it's fascinating. Again, Abraham's at an advanced age. God's recruiting him. We don't know where he's been. We don't know where he's going. We don't know what it's about. We just know it's filled with enormous, enormous promise. And that's at the surface. So when you look at this text on the surface, there's more that's missing than what's there, which makes it one of the first texts of the Bible that's just screaming and inviting us to offer not only rabbinic interpretation, but what I love, as opposed to the sections of the, of the Torah of the Bible, which are more legal in nature, these are narrative, this is storyline, and it invites every human being who reads it to offer their interpretation, to find themselves in the passage, to see what speaks and resonates with them. Absolutely. Now, let's go to the um, Lechlecha. Now, Lechlecha, I believe the Gematria for Lechlecha is 100. So and I think that's already so interesting in the Parsha, is that Abraham's going to have a child when he's 100. In other words, telling us the answer you have been looking for may have always been there. Exactly which is one of the themes that jumps off of me and I want to elaborate more upon, is at first glance, God doesn't give him the destination. He doesn't give him the coordinates. He just tells him to depart, leave, but doesn't say where he's going. He says to the land I'm going to show you. And this becomes a recurring theme because later when the Jewish people leave and when God talks about where the temple will be built and the significance of the temple, he never tells us where it is. He doesn't give us the address. He just says that place I will show you. But he says that we're, not only the place I'm going to show you, the place that you're going to seek. Asher Darash, that you're going to seek. Rabbi Soloveitchik, who I never met or had the privilege of knowing, but was the rabbi of my rabbi, so I consider a mentor, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, he says very brilliantly, God never gives us the address because he wants us to be on the mission of seeking. He wants us to be seekers. He wants us to look. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I have the experience today 
Ever since we don't need a map or we're not looking at directions, but we allow Waze or Google Maps or whatever system you use to just announce when to make a turn, we're totally checked out and tuned out to the journey. And next thing you know, we've arrived at the destination and we have no memory of being on that journey. We find ourselves pulling into that parking spot, whether it's at home or somewhere else where we went, and we don't ever remember stepping on the gas or on the brake. We just got there. And that's exactly what God wants to avoid because to God, the journey in life is so critically important. And he wants us to be invested in the journey, to be enriched by the journey, to be entirely mindful and present on the journey. But he also wants us to cultivate within ourselves that sense of being seekers, of being a dorish, of being somebody who's looking. And, and what Rabbi Soloveitchik develops is the idea that God implanted with every human being that godly spirit, which is a spiritual antenna, which should draw us like a magnet towards spirituality. And when it's finally attuned, it takes us there. And when it's not finally attuned, when we define ourselves instead of by spirituality or a spiritual quest, but by earthly, you know, decadent and, and, and physical things, then we're unable to pick up that message. We're unable to pick up that signal. So the degree to which we can hear the signal is really directly related or proportional to how spiritually we define ourselves. So he wants us to be a seeker. And we find that later collectively as a people. And we find that at the very beginning of our story with Avram, with Abraham, where God says, I want you to start a journey. I'm not telling you where. Let's see if you can intuit. Let's see if you can pick up the signal. Let's see if you know where to go because you can hear me speaking to you, even if it won't be explicit, it's implicit from within you. It's so interesting because as you point out, it happens right at the beginning of Genesis or the beginning of the Abraham story, which is early to mid-Genesis, but it also happens towards the end of Deuteronomy when it says, justice, justice shall you pursue. One would think it would be justice shall you achieve. In other words, go achieve justice. That's not what God and Moses say. They say, pursue it because God is saying, I'm in the pursuit. I'm not in the achievement. Pursue it. Whether you achieve it or not, I hope you do, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the pursuit, which is exactly what you're saying God is saying to Abram here. Just go to where? Just go. Just go. Be on a journey. Be living the journey. Be present on the journey. Find meaning and purpose in the journey and follow your spiritual appetite. Follow where your quest internally takes you and you'll end up at the promised land. Right. Now, how do you think that relates to all of us? So God tells Abram, just go on a journey. Abram, much to his credit, of course, goes. How do you think now? I, I know also in just to structure that go for yourself can also mean, I believe, go to yourself. That's the part that jumps out at me that, that I love and that I think about and I try to share each and every year because ever since Adam is expelled from the Garden of Eden, man is searching for God, looking. And if you think about it, even paganism or idolatry in some way is an act of searching for something bigger, of trying to make sense of this world, of trying to relinquish control to a greater power to believe that somehow it all makes sense. So idolatry is a, a misdirection of it, channeling it to the wrong destination or address, but it's reflective of this inner desire that I think innately or intuitively we all have, which is to submit to something bigger than ourselves, to believe that there's something bigger than ourselves. Um, I think you see it at the end of last week's portion also, when they build the Tower of Bavel, they're trying to stretch to the heavens. They're trying to encounter God. And many have searched and they don't find. And here Abraham succeeds. He discovers God. And where does he find him? Who taught him? Was there a book he read, a seminar he attended, a speaker he listened to? What video did he watch? Or what's, what, what's app group did he subscribe to? What makes Abraham, he's the father of ethical monotheism. Or does he learn it from his father? Because one of the very few things we know about Abram is that he goes with his father and his father dies halfway which is also another story because it's sort of the opposite of the message we're saying. At the end of last week's Torah portion, his father sets out on the same mission towards the same place, Canaan, but he hits this metropolis. He discovers this nightlife and he discovers a world, again, of, of physical, of pleasure, and he's distracted from the mission he was meant to be on. And therefore, he cuts the journey short 
and he's not really on the journey anymore, he changes the destination. And what makes Abraham special is he doesn't just set out on it, but ultimately he gets there. So how does he get there? And where is the there? So our rabbis teach us in the Midrash, in Barishas Rabbah, they say, Me'atzmo lamad Torah. Me'atzmo. Now notice it doesn't say bi'atzmo. Bi'atzmo would mean that by himself he taught, that he was autodidactic, I think it's called. But it says me'atzmo, which means not by himself, but from himself. Abraham taught from within himself. He didn't read a book and he wasn't waiting for a lecture. He didn't listen externally for some motivation or inspiration, but he was driven and he was hungry and he was motivated. And he was curious and he was inquisitive and therefore he became reflective and he engaged in this process of introspection and ultimately the discovery of what we call ethical monotheism. And I think that's amazingly powerful. And, and how does that journey happen? How do you go lech lecha? Now, the simple reading of the verse is that God never tells him where he's going. But if you look at a little deeper layer, I think God tells him in the opening words exactly where he's going. And you know where the destination is? It's not coordinates. It's not geographical. But lech, where he's going is lecha. Go discover who you are. So many of us are the composite of everything around us, right? What we heard at our dinner table, our parents' political views, the educational background that we have, the culture that we live in, the ethos of the time that we're in, all of that cumulatively shapes us. And, and we often fail to discover who we are and what we believe in, how we think and what we want to be. And I don't know if you've ever gone through the exercise, but if you stop and think about, would I be who I am and would I live the way I, I live if I were born two or three or 800 years ago in a different part of the world to a different family in a different socioeconomic class? Right? So how much of who we are is because of who we are genuinely and authentically? And how much of who we are is really imposed on us from the outside? And that's why... Well, and, and actually, that comes to in the, in the previous Parsha, which is Noah in his generation, leading to the ancient question still unresolved, was he righteous objectively or was he righteous only compared to others in his generation? If he were in another generation, he'd be an ordinary guy. Nobody's debated more. Poor Noah. But no <laughs> one's debated more his legacy and who he is. I have a guy in my synagogue who, who hates Parshish Noah because he says every year he's a huge Noah fan and he feels Noah gets dumped on every year by at least 50% of the commentaries. It really bothers him. But yeah, that's the same question is, is an objective or relative to the generations that we're in. So the destination's given. Abraham, go on a journey. And where are you meant to go? Lecha, to yourself. And how do you discover who you are? The way you discover who you are is So elevate or transcend your surroundings, transcend your birthplace, even transcend your home. Now, I'm very close with my family. It doesn't mean that we're not meant to be shaped and influenced by our parents and by our background, but it means don't be entirely, don't let your entire existence be the result of your DNA where you come from. It also means stop blaming your surroundings and your family and your community. Stop blaming your children's school. Stop blaming, you know, your mother, your this, your that, your boss, your spouse, right? So all of them have an impact on who we are, but transcend them. Climb above them. Don't rely on them and don't blame them. Lech lecha. Go to you. Avram, Abraham learned me'atzmo. He dug deep within himself and he committed to this journey of discovery and of change to figure out and to find out who he is and what his life is about. And I think that this, which is one of the tests, Abraham endured 10 tests and he surpassed them all. And the commentaries debate, how do you number the 10 and where do you find them? Are they all in the Bible? Some of them are rabbinic literature. This is clearly one of the tests, but I think it's also one of the tests that every one of us go through. And we're going through it in our time with social media and mass media and, and the influence of our surroundings of every which way. Who are we? When you strip all of that away, when you take away all the superficial, and what's left is the essence of who we are. Have we ever been in touch with that part of who we are? Do we talk to that part of who we are? Do we nourish that part of who we are? Do we protect that part of who we are? What is that part 
within ourselves, lech lecha, have we been on this journey to figure out who we are? Now, what do you make of that God says, I will make your name great, when in the Tower of Babel, one of their sins, not their only sin, but one of their sins was they said, let's make a name for ourselves. Here, God says, I'm going to make your name great. The gematria for Abraham, we're not at Abraham yet, we're at Abram, but the gematria for Abraham will be 248, which is the number of organs in the body. So Abraham, the name is important. He's a complete guy. He's got it all. He's got all 248. He's a complete guy. But the interesting thing is the people of the Tower of Babel are criticized for trying to make a great name. And here God's saying, Abraham, go make a great name. That's a great observation. So I, I think the difference to me, first of all, is they did it out of their own personal ego, right? It was honor, glory they were seeking for themselves. And our rabbis tell us that if you run after honor, honor runs away from you. But if you run from honor, then honor chases you. And I think that's exactly the difference. They were running after honor and honor ran away. And Abraham was running away from honor. He didn't need the honor, but God was saying, nevertheless, because what you stand for is so genuine, authentic, so true, so important to this world, so part of my vision for what the world's meant to be, you need to know that your name will be great. And the way I understand that verse is not that Abraham, the person's name is great, but Abraham, you need to know that your brand, that your mission, that's what's going to be great. It's going to catch on. Because God's making his name great. God says, I'll make your name great. He doesn't say, you'll make your name great. Exactly. That's what you're saying. So if when you chase it, you're making your name great. But when you do it for something a higher and it comes to you, God's making your name great. Yeah, it's like the fifth level leadership in good to great. So five level leadership is not about me. It's about the cause. So God's saying, Abraham, because you're so committed to the cause and it's not about you, and we know that later when Abraham will pass the test of slaughtering his own son, which will end you know, everything in his name, but it's about the cause. I will make your name great because the cause is so great. It's worth the world following. Right. Now, 12.3 is, I mean, this, this is such an important verse to us, but it is the most important verse in the Torah, probably to evangelical Christians, because you know, this is the religious root of the evangelical love for the Jewish people the Jewish Torah, the Jewish religion, and of course, the Jewish state. It's all 12.3. And in fact, when you have evangelical friends, you'll just hear 12.3 referred to, not even Genesis 12.3, like 12.3, like everyone should know what 12.3 is because I will bless those who bless you. Him who curses, I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. And we've actually had uh, Eric Stockelbach, who, has, who is a great evangelical friend and has a very popular television program. He came out of the rabbi's husband to discuss what this meant to him. So what does this mean to you as, as an Orthodox Jew, 12.3? I wish, and I, and I say this whenever I interact with my evangelical friends, I wish that my fellow Jews believed this verse and believed it literally the way evangelicals do. We all interpret it. We almost apologize for it rather than actually embrace it as part of God's mission for having created the Jewish people. They're blessing us with 12.3. They are, exactly. So I think it's, it's something that we can be proud of. And it's something that I don't know we need to broadcast in, in some boastful way, but it's something that we can be proud of. And, and I'll tell you how I read this verse. I read the verse not as a sense of entitlement. It's not that we are inherently great and deserve to be blessed. I read it with a sense of responsibility. We are meant to live in a great way that we will deserve to be blessed. That if the Jewish people, all too often, tragically, we fail and come up way too short. But if we live righteous, virtuous lives, if we fulfill the mandate for which we exist, which is to be a light unto nations, to shape the world as a more moral and ethical place, then in fact, people will point to us and say, wow, I wish the world was more like them. Look how observant Jews do business. Look how they treat each other interpersonally. Look at the level of faith with which they live and they rely and lean on God. And I wish the world were like that. That's what it means to be blessed by the world. But I, I don't think it comes automatically. I think we have to earn it. And so I read this verse not as a sense of entitlement. I read it with a, an awesome sense of responsibility. And of course, so much of Deuteronomy just totally confirms and amplifies what you said, where Moses says, if you don't act in a certain way, here are the curses that are going to come upon you for acting in a certain way. And those curses are things that nobody would want. 
Right. So lest the Jewish people think that we will be blessed automatically, and it's a, only a question of the other nations, whether they'll be blessed by attaching themselves to us, our path is not so clearly towards blessing unless we earn it ourselves. And how blessed we are to have that responsibility. In other words, if we can be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation as an Exodus or a light unto the nations as in Isaiah, then the world will look to us and say, I want to be inspired like they're inspired. I want to behave like they behave. I want to be like them. And, and what, what a sacred obligation and a holy responsibility and a blessing for all of us that we can be that people for the world. Which actually relates to another part of these opening verses, which is, I think people mistakenly talk about Abraham and by extension, we the Jewish people as being the chosen people. But the truth is we're not the chosen people, we're the choosing people. And the reason we are the choosing people is because our ancestor, our great-great-grandfather Abraham chose God. He wasn't the first, which is a whole other question. We already have personalities in the Bible before him who discovered monotheism. So why is Abraham credited with it is a great question, but, but not, not my point right now. But Abraham chooses God and God says, you know, you got it. You're living a life in, in a world of selfishness. You're living a selfless life. Your tent is open on all corners. You're greeting all guests. Everyone cares only about themselves. Others are bowing down to pagans. Others are hedonistic pleasure seekers. And you care about other people. So Abraham chose God and God in turn chooses us. And that's what this verse is saying. If we follow our ancestors' footsteps and we choose God and live a virtuous life, then we will be blessed. I always liken it to the honor society. Now, when I was in school, you took the best students who made the grade, but also had the behavior and they were labeled the honor society. And then you said, basically, you blessed all the other students that you should be worthy of being in the honor society. You should be like the kids in the honor society. But those in the honor society still had to earn it. They had to live up to it and you can get kicked out of it if you don't. And so that's the responsibility that we all bear. And I think that comes through actually in 12 too, where it says, and you shall be a blessing, not you are a blessing you shall be a blessing. In other words, you have to act like a blessing. You have the opportunity to be a blessing. Right, proscriptive, not descriptive. We have to earn it. Right, you shall be a blessing. In other words, if you shall be something, it's I hope you'll be it, you can be it, but you very well might fail. It's not your birthright, it's, it's your opportunity. 100%, exactly. Which is an entire different spin on Judaism and Judaism's place within the nations of the world. Because unfortunately, and there is no one explanation for anti-Semitism, nor will we get rid of it with this response, but Jews should never feel that we are superior in any way innately. We're not naturally better. We have a greater responsibility. We bear a greater responsibility, which hopefully will earn the blessing and admiration of others, but we have to earn it. And it's really important, not only for non-Jews, but it's important for Jews to know the responsibility that we bear. And I think that comes through so clearly um, later in the Torah when God says to us, I want you to be my firstborn. A rational response is, wait, you can't choose to be the firstborn. Like, you know, and, and by the way, we weren't the firstborn chronologically. There were the Parasites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Egyptians and lots of other people. But what's the role of the firstborn in the family? The firstborn is he or she who the other children follow. That's the opportunity. That's typically what happens in a family is the other children look to the firstborn. And if the firstborn is doing what mom and dad want, they'll comply. If the firstborn is rebelling, they'll comply with that. Right. So much so, by the way, that the law is that the firstborn receives a double portion and an inheritance, not because they're shown favor, but because they bear a greater responsibility. The assumption is that the firstborn will step into the place of that mother or father and bear the responsibility to provide for their siblings. And that's why they need greater resources to do it. So that's even implied within the law itself. Absolutely. And, and so much of the Torah is about subverting the chronological definition of primogeniture, where the firstborn chronologically doesn't get the privilege. It's a younger one who acts like the firstborn and becomes the leader, King David. I mean, on and on. That's the whole book of Genesis, if you think about it too. It's Rachel and Leah, and it's, it's Jacob and Asa, and it's the whole book of Genesis is that exactly. And Moses is the thirdborn, and King David is the eighthborn. But it's, it's the notion that you can choose to be the firstborn. You can choose to be the leader. You can, as you were saying, you can overcome your nature. You can overcome your biology, and you can be the firstborn. You can be the leader. 
And that, that's why this speaks to me. It's the most motivational passage. Lech Lecha, go discover who you are. And, and I think we all need to be in that journey. In Judaism, in Jewish law in particular, we often focus on two realms of relationships. We talk about ben adam lamakom, between us and God, and ben adam lachavero, between man and fellow man, between a person and, and other people. But there's a third relationship that we all have, which is ben adam la'atzmo, the relationship we have with ourselves. And too many people are ignorant of that relationship and are failing to nurture and protect that relationship. And that's the lech lecha. And I'll tell you a beautiful insight. You know, in our daily prayer in the Amida, the Shemona Esra that we recite, the first blessing concludes with the words, Magain Avraham, the shield of Abraham. Now the blessing begins by acknowledging the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what happened to the other two patriarchs? Why do we abandon them to go back to concluding it as the shield of Abraham? It's a beautiful comment of the Sfas Emes, the Ger Rebbe, who says that what we are acknowledging is that God protects, he shields the Abraham in us. Abraham successfully went on that journey that wasn't about the destination, but was about self-discovery. Abram realized who he was and who he was meant to be. He understood he was on a mission-driven life. And there is that sense within each and every one of us of the lech lecha. Go to you. Go discover who you are and who you're meant to be and what difference you're meant to make in this world. None of us are extra, gratuitous. None of us are insignificant or inconsequential. We're creating God's image. In God's image, and we're here for a reason. That's the Magain Avram. That when you start to get down on yourself, or when you start to worry, maybe I'm not worthy, or maybe I don't make a difference, or no, maybe nobody would notice if I weren't ever here. Magain Avram. God has preserved within us the courage and the confidence to know that every one of us is here for a reason. That's that's a tough thing. And we can be that child of God, creating God's image for exactly the reason you say. It's you're not constrained by your land, you're not constrained by your relatives, you're not constrained by your father's house. Not that you should rebel against any of this or all of it, none of it. But you're not constrained by any of it. You can't blame any of it. God expects a lot from you and he's giving you the ability to go to yourself and you can overcome. Whatever you have to overcome, you can overcome it. That's the message of 12.1. Figure out who you are. And it's, you know, Jocko Willink, the great Navy SEAL who's written a lot of books with the podcast, has a book called Extreme Ownership. And that's the Lech Lecha. Stop looking for the solutions outside yourself. Stop looking for the solution in the next guru, in the next coach, in the next mentor, in the next book, in the next... That's not to say that we don't embrace help and support from all over. But ultimately, if we don't take personal responsibility, if we don't take the extreme ownership, if we don't lech lecha, if we don't go within ourselves to find the answer, we'll never find the answer outside ourselves. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, thank you for such a fascinating discussion of uh, this magnificent passage of uh, 12, 1 through 3. Now, the... um concluding question on the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to this man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years as a rabbi, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, I've learned one thing, which is not a secret, but yet somehow we still fail to remember it when we interact with others, is that everyone's human, everyone's fallible, everybody has their, not skeletons in the closet to suggest some, some type of controversy, but every one of us is struggling. Every one of us is struggling. There's a great quote, I'm forgetting the, the author right now, who said, be kind to everyone you meet for everyone's battling something you know nothing about. And I love that quote, and I try to live in that way, because as a rabbi, you know who's been diagnosed with an illness, whose marriage is struggling, who's struggling to have children to conceive, who's struggling to put food on their table, and maybe they hold their head high and they interact with others, and other people look at them, maybe with a sense of envy, wish they could be like them, having no idea what they're battling. Or maybe they've had a negative interaction. Maybe that person who's battling something incredibly difficult, you know, walked by them in the supermarket, 
supermarket and failed to say hi or didn't get back to a text or a phone call. And so the other judged them unfavorably. And if we live our lives realizing that everyone's battling something we know nothing about, that if they knew our battles, we would expect them to be kinder to us, give us the benefit of the doubt. We should give everyone else the benefit of the doubt, realizing that everyone around us is battling something we know nothing about. That I think would be the first thing that I learned. And um, the second thing I think is that, that people are inherently good. And that even when we see them as doing bad, it's because uh, we're struggling. There's a world of temptation, distraction. We all have our own baggage. We all have our own backgrounds. And people are inherently good. And let's go seek and find the good in them and find what, that which is redeemable in others. And if we do, we'll always find something to connect with. But if people are inherently good, then how do you reconcile what, when God says, sin is crouching at your door, or when he says, man is evil from his youth? So we were going to ask that because that passage bothered me. In fact, just this past week, I was, I was sharing it in synagogue that it bothered me. The way I reconcile it is I, I believe what God is telling us is that when you discover that voice within yourself that's trying to sabotage, that's trying to distract, that's trying to give into some temptation, don't think that you are the aberration, that you're the outlier, that there's something wrong or corrupt within you. Realize that's part of the very definition of the way man was created. It's built into the software. The great part about life is the free will that we have, the highest pleasure, the greatest joy we get is when we make the right choice, even when we have choices to be made. So I think what God was telling us that it's not that we are pre-programmed to do bad, it's that we are pre-programmed to have the choice between good and bad, and that we'll always have the appetite for bad drawing us as powerfully and sometimes more than it draws us to good. But we also have that appetite for good, and we are inherently good even if we struggle with making choices that are bad. Right, and it almost doesn't matter if we're inherently good or bad, because what God says is, since crouching at your door, you can conquer it. As you said, just go to yourself, you can conquer it. Extreme ownership, step up and we can do it. Lech lecha. I'll end up, you know, Margaret, sharing one last thought, which is the Medrash wonders, the rabbis wonder in the Medrash Tanhuma, these words lech lecha appear twice. They appear here when we're introduced to Abraham on the scene, and they appear a second time, lech lecha el har hamoriah, the beginning of the binding of Isaac. That test begins with God says, go. And the Medrash actually wonders, which is astounding, which is the harder lech lecha? Which test of go forth is a harder go forth? Now, objectively, that's an absurd question. Go forth and take your son and slaughter him as being compared to go forth and I will make you rich and give you a great name and reputation and which one is more difficult. But in the context of what we've talked about for this wonderful time that we've been together, we can understand why at least they paused. Ultimately, they conclude obviously it's the binding, which is the harder one. But this notion of a journey towards self of self-discovery, of extreme ownership, of personal responsibility is an extremely, extremely difficult test. And the difference between them is the test of slaughter your son is a momentary test. It's a mind-boggling, astounding test. It's one that confounds everyone since it was offered and will continue to. But it's a momentary step up for the moment. The Lech Lecha test that says throughout your life, be on a journey. And throughout your life, be on the journey of self-discovery. And don't ever waver for however long you will be here on earth. That's a lot harder because it's ongoing. There's never a break. And therefore, perhaps it's even more difficult, even though they concluded it wasn't. Your point of being ongoing is also important, getting back to what you were saying earlier, which is Abraham 75. God's telling the 75-year-old, go to yourself. Now, we conventionally think that as a teenager, when you're in college, you're, you're finding yourself, you're discovering yourself, and when we're 75, we are who we are. God's saying, nope, 75, go to yourself. Exactly, which is also a big, important message to everyone at whatever stage of life you're in. You could be retired, you could be you know, settled down from your career, you could be sitting under palm trees in Boca Raton, Florida, in a retirement community, but you're never retired. You retire from a profession. You don't retire from life and the journey to figure out how you can be the best you can be and what your mission is in life. There, there are people who publish books after 100 years old. My friend and one of the first guests in the rabbi's house, and Michael Oren, was telling me the other day that his mother is 92 and is coming out with her first book. That's amazing. I love that. 
because what we're meant to contribute and the difference we're meant to make, if we woke up this morning, our contract's been renewed for another day. We yet have another purpose to be here on earth. Whatever it might be, in whatever modest or whatever significant or large scale way, we have a difference to be made. And, and lech lecha, it's up to each of us to discover and to define and then to achieve whatever the lecha, whatever is inside us to be able to bring out. Well, Rabbi Goldberg, thank you for such a fascinating discussion. I can see why so many people have said you're a legend and, and everyone should listen to your podcast and they can see it yourself. So uh, what a great discussion. Thank you. You're way too kind. I appreciate it. And thank you. You're, you're qualified, I think, as the rabbi, not just the rabbi's husband with your knowledge, your knowledge and your insights. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just the rabbi's husband. Thank you for your time. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.